Chapter 2 The Keynote of the Bible God is Love 1 John chapter 4, verse 8 Our subject is The Keynote of the Bible You will find the keynote of the Bible in my text, 1 John chapter 4, verse 8. God is Love That is one of the shortest sentences ever written, and it is certainly one of the greatest and most profound. It is inexhaustible in its meaning and scope. Men have been studying, scrutinizing, pondering, and digging into that sentence throughout the 18 centuries that have passed since it was written, and they have not exhausted it yet. Thousands upon thousands of sermons have been preached upon that text, yet something new awaits every preacher who studies it and seeks to expound upon it. Thousands of volumes have been written by some of the world's greatest thinkers devoted to the study, exposition, and application of that sentence. But it is as fresh and full as ever. It is constantly yielding new treasures to each new century and to each new explorer of its exhaustless wealth. Men and angels will ponder that sentence throughout the endless ages of eternity and not exhaust it. The book that contains that matchless sentence bears the unmistakable seal of having God for its author. The golden truth of priceless worth contained in this sentence is peculiar to the Bible. All the philosophers in the world never discovered that astounding truth until God revealed it and the Bible declared it. The world would never have known that God is love had God not revealed the fact in His own word. It is true that there are evidences of benevolent design in nature and in history. But nature and history have both been marred by Satan's work and by the entrance of sin into the world. It is only that interpretation of history and that insight into the future of man, nature, and Satan that the Bible gives that enables us to see love reigning above all and through all. We hear much today of the profound truths contained in the teachings of the world's great philosophers of ancient and modern times, in philosophers like Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, Seneca, Isocrates, Epictetus, Marcus Aurelius Antoninus, and in the teachings of the great founders of religions like Buddha, Muhammad, Confucius, and Zoroaster. But in none of them do we find this great truth that God is love or anything like it, not until the Bible revealed it. We owe this truth wholly and solely to the Bible. We must go then to the Bible for the interpretation of this truth. This sentence is the keynote of the entire Bible. It is the great fundamental thought of the Bible. If anyone were to ask me to put into one sentence what the Bible teaches, I could do it. And this would be the sentence, God is love. From start to finish, from Genesis chapter 1 verse 1 to Revelation chapter 22 verse 21, the Bible is one great ever-swelling anthem, and the theme of that anthem is, God is love. God's love is the keynote of the whole Bible, of each one of the 66 books that go to make up the completed whole. The love of God led to the creation, as described in the first chapter of Genesis. God's love led to the banishment of Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden when they fell, as recorded in the third chapter of Genesis. God's love led to the promise of the Savior, the seed of the woman, immediately after Adam and Eve had fallen. God's love led to the call of Abraham and Jacob to be a blessing first to their own descendants 
and ultimately to the whole human race. God's love led to the bondage of Israel in Egypt and to their deliverance from that bondage when the time was ripe. God's love led to the giving of the law through Moses on Sinai, and God's love led to the extermination of the Canaanites. It was God's love that led to the planting of Israel in that land so wondrously adapted by its natural configuration and by its location in the then-inhabited world to be the training place of the nation that would bring blessing to the whole earth and from which the Savior would be born. God's love shaped Israel's history through all their wanderings from Him, and God's love at last rooted Israel out of the land He had given them and scattered them throughout the earth. Then God's love will restore them again to the land that belongs to them by eternal covenant when the time is full. God's love sent Jesus Christ to die for sinful men, to rise again from the dead, and to ascend to the right hand of the Father in glory. And it will be God's love that will send Him back to the earth when the fullness of time for that greatest event in all this earth's history has come. Heaven and all its glories, hell and all its horrors, both have their origin in the love of God. Yes, God is love is the keynote of the Bible, the secret of history, the explanation of nature, and the solution of eternity's mysteries. I wish to call your attention to some of the ways in which the love of God is manifested. Of course, it would take many sermons to recount all the manifestations of the love of God, but we can look at some of them, even though it would take all eternity to fully understand and appreciate even them. God's love is manifested in His provisions for us. In the first place, God's love manifests itself in His ministering to all our needs and to our fullest joy. This comes out again and again in the Bible. Our Lord Jesus expounded to His disciples their duty when He said, Love your enemies, and pray for them that persecute you, that ye may be sons of your Father which is in heaven. For He maketh His Son to rise on the evil and the good, and sendeth rain on the just and the unjust. Matthew chapter 5, verses 44-45. through 45. And way back in the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verses 9-12, through 12, we read, For the Lord's portion is His people. Jacob is the lot of His inheritance. He found Him in a desert land and in the waste-howling wilderness. He compassed Him about. He cared for Him. He kept Him as the apple of His eye. As an eagle that stirreth up her nest, that fluttereth over her young, he spread abroad his wings. He took them. He bare them on his pinions. The Lord alone did lead him, and there was no strange God with him. This is a marvelous picture of the wondrous love of God. Every blessing of life is a love token from God. As the Holy Spirit puts it through the Apostle James in James chapter 1, verse 17, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. When the sun shines with its warmth and light and gladness, lift up your head with joy and say, This is a token of my Father's love. When you look upon the blossoming flowers, the growing grass, the budding trees in their spring beauty, say, All this beauty with which God adorns the earth is another token of God's love for me. When you feel health, and strength coursing through your veins, look up and thank God again, for this is another token of His love. 
the countless blessings that come to us every day of our lives, most of them unnoticed in our blindness and ingratitude, are all tokens of His great and constant love. God's love chastens us. In the second place, God's love for His children, even those who are not yet His children, is manifested in His chastening when we forget Him, wander from Him, and fall into sin. This is very clear in that beautiful passage, Hebrews chapter 12, verses 6-10. through 10. For whom the Lord loveth he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. It is for chastening that ye endure. God dealeth with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father chasteneth not? But if ye are without chastening, whereof all have been made partakers, then are ye bastards and not sons. Furthermore, we had the fathers of our flesh to chasten us, and we gave them reverence. Shall we not much rather be in subjection unto the Father of spirits and live? For they verily for a few days chastened us, as seemed good to them, but he for our profit, that we may be partakers of his holiness. We see that God's love manifests itself in chastening us and in sending us trials and pain and bereavement and sorrow. Many cannot see any proof of God's love in their many and great afflictions. It seems to them that God does not love them when He allows them to suffer such awful and sometimes such appalling griefs and trials, but those who think that are very blind. Don't we chasten our own beloved children? Don't we do it because we love them and for their good? It would often be easier for us not to do it. It would spare our feelings for we suffer far more than they do when we punish them, if we are true parents. Some parents are so unloving and so self-centered that they allow their children to go unpunished in their folly and sin in order to spare their own feelings. But not so with our Heavenly Father. He really loves us, wisely loves us, and so chastens us for our highest good. Sometimes when our conduct makes it necessary, He very severely chastises us or, as the Bible puts it, He scourges us. Every wise man thanks God for His chastening love, even in its severest manifestations. For twelve years or more, God spared my wife and me and our family in our home life from serious sickness. We had gone through epidemics of many kinds unscathed. When threatened with croup, scarlet fever, typhoid fever, diphtheria, and other diseases, we cried to God and He gave deliverance again and again. But a day came when God permitted diphtheria to enter our home, and a few short hours after the real character of the disease was discovered, it took from us a beautiful child when we thought all danger of death was past. It was a stunning blow. Just twenty-four years ago this week, and March 17th never comes around without our thinking of it. For the first time the family circle was broken. The body of our child had been carried from our happy home and laid in the lonely cemetery. Why did God permit that? Because He loved us. We needed it. The following Sunday night, I spoke on Hebrews chapter 12, verse 6, For whom the Lord loveth he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. This chastisement, yes, this scourging, led to deep, heart-searchings, and discovery of failure, and thereby led to confession of sin. It led also to new consecration and love for souls and devotion to God. 
it brought the answer to prayers that had been ascending to him for years. It was one of the things that led to my leaving Chicago a few years later to enter upon a worldwide ministry. If God had not, in His infinite wisdom and love, taken our beloved child, our beautiful and gifted child, from us, I think I would never have seen China, Japan, Australia, New Zealand, India, and the marvelous work of God in these countries, and the great work of God that followed in England, Ireland, Wales, Germany, and many other places. God's judgments are unsearchable, His ways past finding out. Romans chapter 11, verse 33. But they are always wise and loving, though we for the time cannot understand how. All of God's seemingly severe dealings with us came from the wise and wondrous love of God, and we both saw it and praised Him. There is no kinder manifestation of the love of God than His chastening when we forget Him or wander from Him or become immersed in the world. One beautiful spring day years ago, a friend of mine in Ohio asked me to take a drive with him. We drove out into the country to a quiet cemetery. We entered and went to a remote corner of the cemetery and found three graves side by side. One the grave of an adult, and the other two of children. They were the graves of that man's wife and his two little girls. All the family he had at the time, with the exception of one little boy. We knelt beside the graves in prayer. As we drove back to town, that man said to me, Brother Tory, I pity the man whom God has not chastened. What did he mean? He meant this. He had been a man of the world, an honorable, highly respected man, but a thoroughgoing worldling. Diphtheria came into his house. It took one of his little daughters. As she lay in her casket, the father knelt beside it and promised God that he would become a Christian. But when the first bitterness of the sorrow had passed, he forgot his vow. Again, sickness and death entered his home. This time, the second daughter died. Beside her coffin, he renewed his vow and kept it. He came to know the joy that every true Christian knows, to have the glorious hope for eternity that only the Christian has. I think he became the most active and efficient Christian in the community, and it all came from God's chastening love. He told me again and again that his favorite text of Scripture was, Whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth. Ah, friends, if some affliction has come upon you, see it as a token of God's love, and learn the sweet lessons he would teach by this sorrow. God's love sympathizes with us. God's love is also manifested in his sympathizing with us in all our afflictions. This is very clear in a wonderful verse in the Old Testament. Scripture In all their affliction he was afflicted, and the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity he redeemed them, and he bare them and carried them all the days of old. Isaiah chapter 63 verse 9 While God, in his wise love for us, chastens us, even scourges us, when we forget him and wander into sin and worldliness, Nevertheless, He deeply sympathizes with us in every sorrow, trial, and heartache that our sin brings upon us. In all our affliction, He is afflicted. It may be His own hand that sends the affliction, as it was in the passage just read. We need the affliction. It does us good, so He sends it. But He suffers with us in it. 
God is the one great sympathizer, for in all our affliction He is afflicted. In our own sorrow, we had many, many sympathizing human friends, and letters and telegrams of heartfelt sympathy poured in upon us. But no one sympathized with us so fully, so tenderly, so deeply, so intelligently as God Himself. He saw what no human eye could see and entered into it all. There were many tender little ministries of His in those days of profound sorrow, and many wondrous, great ministries also. No human being will ever know what Mrs. Torrey and I passed through the night following the burial of our little child and the next morning. The waters were deep. It seemed as if they would go over our heads. But one walked beside us. It was God. He suffered with us. He kept His word. Scripture, When thou passest through the waters, I will be with thee, and through the rivers they shall not overflow thee. When thou walkest through the fire, thou shalt not be burned, neither shall the flame kindle upon thee. Isaiah chapter 43 verse 2 Some of you are in deep sorrow, some in sorrow of one kind, and some in sorrow of an entirely different kind. But I want to tell you one and all that God sympathizes with you all in your sorrow, whatever it may be. It may seem to you that no one sympathizes with you, that no one even understands, that no one cares, and that may be true of men, but it is not true of God. He understands it all and enters into it all. Our Father cares. A woman came to see me at the hotel where I was staying in Bendigo, Australia. She told me that an awful sorrow had come into her life, but that she could not tell it to anyone, for they all knew her. But I was a stranger and would soon leave the place. Her burden was so heavy, she felt that she needed the sympathy of someone, so she had come to me. It was a terrible story that she told me. She was passing through one of the greatest sorrows that ever overtakes any true woman, and her heart was nearly crushed. When she had finished that sad story, she said to me, I feel better now, that there is someone who knows my sorrow and can sympathize with me. I said to her, I do indeed sympathize with you. I am glad you came and told me the story that I might help you bear your burden. But, I added, there is one who has known all about it from the beginning. God has known all about it, and he has sympathized with you all the time. Oh, it is true. Not a sorrow, not a heartache, not a disappointment, not a calamity, and not a grief ever comes to us without our Heavenly Father knowing it all. He knows it in all its details and sympathizes with us in all the suffering. He himself suffers far more than we suffer. God's love always remembers us. God's love is manifested in His never forgetting those whom He loves. He Himself tells us in the wonderful words in Isaiah chapter 49, verses 15-16, through 16, Can a woman forget her sucking child, that she should not have compassion on the son of her womb? Yea, these may forget, yet will not I forget thee. Behold, I have graven thee upon the palms of my hands, Thy walls are continually before me. God sometimes seems to forget, but He never does. We cry and no answer comes. 
The heavens seem to be as brass above our heads, but God has not forgotten. He never forgets. A mother may forget her child, and though that is not likely, she may forget. But God has said, Yet will not I forget thee. He has said furthermore, Behold, I have graven thee upon the palms of my hands. God's Love Forgives God's love is manifested in His forgiving our sins. Hezekiah cried unto the Lord, Behold, it was for my peace that I had great bitterness. But thou hast in love to my soul delivered it from the pit of corruption, for thou hast cast all my sins behind thy back. Isaiah chapter 38 verse 17 God stands ready in His love to pardon the sins of the vilest sinner. There are two things, and only two, which in His love He demands as a condition of that pardon. First, we must forsake our sins. Second, we must turn to Him in faith and surrender to His will. Listen to His own word. Scripture, Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts, and let him return unto the Lord, and He will have mercy upon him, and to our God, for He will abundantly pardon. Isaiah chapter 55 verse 7 God will not pardon our sins if we hold on to them. There is a theory regarding God's love current in the world today that has no warrant in the Word of God. Namely, that because God is love, He will pardon and save all men, whether they repent and believe on Jesus Christ or not. This theory is holy and utterly unscriptural. To believe it, you must give up the Bible. But if you give up the Bible, you must give up your belief that God is love, for it is from the Bible and from the Bible alone that we learn that truth. There is absolutely no other proof that God is love than that the Bible says so. That is proof enough, for the Bible can be proven to be the Word of God. But if you give up the Bible and are logical, you must give up your belief that God is love, for when the Bible is gone, the belief that God is love has no foundation of any kind. But if you retain the Bible, you cannot believe that God will pardon and save all men whether they repent or not. The most illogical system in the world, except Unitarianism, is Universalism. It starts out with the Bible's statement that God is love as its foundation stone. Then it goes to work to discredit the Bible by rejecting other plain statements in it. Statements about hell and the future state of those who reject Christ. By doing that, it undermines the authority of the Bible and thus undermines the foundation of our faith that God is love. In other words, universalism tries to build up a superstructure by undermining its own foundation. Give up the Bible, and there is no proof that God is love. So universalism is no longer possible. If you believe in the Bible, you must believe in hell, and so universalism ceases. Take either horn of the dilemma you please, and universalism has absolutely no foundation. The very love of God, God's love for the righteous, and His love for His Son, Jesus Christ, demands that if men persist in sin and persist in the rejection of His Son, Jesus Christ, they must be separated from the righteous and punished. The love of God makes hell a necessity if men persist in sin. And if they persist eternally in sin, it makes eternal hell a necessity. It is psychologically certain, as well as clearly revealed in the Bible, 
that if men persist in sin beyond a certain point, they will persist in sin eternally. But if the vilest sinner repents, God will pardon. He says so. He goes so far as to say in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18, Come now, and let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. A man once said to me, My sins are too great for God to pardon. I answered, I do not wish you to think that your sins are any less than you now think they are. No doubt they are even greater than you think. But I want you to see that great as your sins are, God's pardoning love is greater still. How often God proved this in the Bible. David's sin was great. It was monstrous. He was an adulterer and a murderer. And yet God pardoned him. Manasseh's sin was exceedingly great. He hated God and he hated God's people. He made the streets of Jerusalem to run with the blood of God's servants, and yet God pardoned him. 2 Kings chapter 24 verses 3 through 4, cross-reference 2 Chronicles chapter 33 verses 1 through 13. Saul of Tarsus was a great sinner. He hated Jesus Christ. He persecuted the disciples of Jesus Christ and took part in their murder. He was a bold blasphemer and compelled others to blaspheme, and yet God pardoned him. So down through the centuries, many of the vilest sinners this world has ever seen have repented, and God has pardoned them. Many men and women have gone down into the deepest depths of sin, but God has pardoned and saved them, and they can rejoice in His pardoning love, knowing that their every sin is blotted out, and they have been transformed by the power of His grace. God's love is sacrificial. God's love was manifested in His giving His only begotten Son to die in our place. As the Spirit of God puts it in John chapter 3, verse 16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And again we read in Romans chapter 8, verse 32, He that spared not his own Son, but delivered him up for us all. And we read in 1 John chapter 4, verse 10, Herein is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us, and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. And in the prophetic vision of the Old Testament, seven hundred years before the Savior was born, we read, All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 6. This manifestation of God's love is the greatest of all. This manifestation of God's love is stupendous. It seems past believing, but we know it is true. God made the greatest sacrifice in his power for our good. He made the greatest sacrifice in the world's history. He gave up that which was dearest to him, his own son. No earthly son was ever so dear to his father as Jesus Christ was dear to God. I have a son, an only son, and I love him. But my love for my boy is but the faintest foreshadowing of God's love for Jesus Christ. And yet God gave that only begotten son, that eternally beloved son, up for you and me. He gave him up to die, to die an awful death, 
an appalling death. He gave him up to be crushed by the weight of man's sin and guilt. And for what purpose did he give him up? That whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. God has done everything in his power to provide everlasting life for each one of us. If we do not have it, it is our own fault. God has exhausted the resources of infinite wisdom and infinite love and infinite power to provide everlasting life for you and me, and you and I can have it for the taking. Such is the love of God, very inadequately described. But I wish to ask a question in closing. The question is this. What are you going to do with that wondrous love of God right now? Our guilt never looks so black as when seen in the dazzling light of God's amazing love. To be a sinful man or woman and to despise and break God's holy and excellent laws seems bad enough. But the worst thing, the most damnable and damning thing about men and women without Christ is that they are trampling underfoot the love of God. What would you think of a man who had a true and loving mother who had done everything for him, made every sacrifice for him, and had impoverished herself and imperiled and wasted her life for him, and then he despised that love, rejected that love, sneered at that love, denied that love, and sought to discredit that love? Would you not say that the man was a wretch? But no mother's love is so great and wonderful as the love of God for you and me. No mother ever made a sacrifice for her child as great as God has made for you and me. Now what will you do with that love? Will you accept it or despise it? Will you put your trust in it or spurn it? Will you open your heart to it or spit upon it? What will you do with it? Are you rejecting Christ? Are you trampling underfoot the wondrous love of God revealed by giving His Son to die on Calvary's cross for you? If you are, what have you to say for yourselves? Give up your awful treatment of this glorious Son of God and accept Him now as your personal Savior. Surrender to Him as your Lord and Master and begin the confession of Him, a confession that many should have begun long, long ago. Go out to serve Him all the remainder of your days with all your strength.